Welcome to Peace and Resist. Good morning, Troy, Alabama. Today we are going to cover the life of John Lewis. We got three to four episodes on his life throughout this month. They're going to be fun, there's going to be great, there's going to be some emotion. Cato, you got anything? Oh yeah, so our primary sources for this, for the first episode we're looking at Walking with the Wind, the memoir written by John Lewis with Michael Dorso. We're going to have additional sources in the future. We are basically going to cover his formative years here. We're going to talk about his upbringing, the area around him, and some events that really shaped him into the civil rights leader that he became. This is going to be great. Join us on our walk with John Lewis. John Robert Lewis was born on February 21, 1940, near Troy, Alabama, about 50 miles from Montgomery in Pike County. There were two primary identifying characteristics about Pike County in the year John was born, poverty and churches. Roughly 32,000 people lived in the county at this time. The neighboring Barber County created a unique symmetry in his life, with George Wallace being born practically next door and yet a planet away. George Wallace was something of a statistical counterpoint to John Lewis and the area he grew up in. As John Lewis states in the prologue, his story transcends all demographics, race, gender, age, and so on. The economic marketplace that was Seiko Pike County in 1950s Alabama became a series of dilapidated warehouses as the decades passed. While growing up on every Saturday, John would help out his father with delivering the cotton yields along with his brothers Adolf and Edward. John would receive a couple coins for his effort and buy a sweet treat of some Ike and Mike's, not Mike and Ike's. Right, Adrian? Yeah, so for the Mike and Ike's, you know, we did a research on that and it was like 30 minutes, actually. It, it, it was one of our most researched points here. It's Ike and Mike's, a sweet treat, gingerbread. Not Mike and Ike's. Not Mike and Ike's. Not the gummies. Not the gummies. Not the gummies. Right? <laughs> Pike County in this region of Alabama was mostly unchanged geographically for hundreds of years with each of the communities peppered in between forests, wooded areas, and rolling hills loaded with back roads that tell both haunting and hopeful stories. Just north is hunting grounds in Tennessee. Populating the terrain are oak, hickory, and chestnut trees. Occasionally a creek or stream is calmly flowing nearby, and local populations of deer that have flourished over ages are, are everywhere to be found. So peaceful and beautiful, I'm thinking. Yeah. Scenes of like, like... Almost out of a movie, right? Classic American country. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The county is named after the same man that Pikes Peak in Colorado is named after, though General Zebulon Montgomery Pike never walked the grounds of Pike County during his 1800s exploration. Weird, huh? Like, it's weird. It's weird. Why would they... Well, actually, if you look why... into... So General Zebulon Montgomery's yeah, story alone is wild. Yeah. We could do that a whole episode on him alone. Yeah. He has like 10 places named after him. Uh, so uh, Pikes Peak in Colorado that I mentioned, but tons of others. And so he was basically just a, a big-time American explorer, okay. expeditionist. He fought in the War it's of 1812. Like that Lewis and Clark type of uh, exploration, right? Yeah, okay. Yep, that exactly. Vibe. Okay. I, the, uh, I the Magellan of America in ah, some, some weird way or something. <laughs> Marco Polo. Okay, okay. Yep. Interesting. Yeah, it is. Black populations were scarce as of 1821 when Pike County was formally established. Agriculture began to replace ranching, and by the 1850s, one-fifth of Pike County was black. All but 10 of the 3,200 black residents were slaves. Overwhelmingly, farmers were yeomen. 
and yeomen are like working small to medium patches of land. So kind of like sharecroppers almost, right? Or indentured servants? You know what's coming up. Oh, exactly. Okay. okay. Exactly. And you know that was prevalent in post-slavery agriculture in America. Interesting. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. So a side note here. After the Civil War, a large swath of white farmers in this area, in this part of Alabama, actually relocated to Brazil. Brazil? Yeah. Out of all the places. Out of all places in Brazil? Yeah, yeah. go figure. So this actually led to a a weird type of equity at the time among black and white farmers. Because nearly everyone was struggling, as you mentioned, as sharecroppers. And so there were plantation owners as well out here, uh, but they weren't the majority. So there was a couple big boppers with the plantations. Overwhelmingly, there were yeomen working small to medium plots doing sharecropping. So kind of like what we're seeing now with Wall Street and like Main Street in America? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you on that one. <laughs> uh, I know 1850s farming right now. I'm not sure about modern Wall Street. <laughs> one form of terror that John Lewis faced growing up was known as white capping. This was more than an intimidation. It was a direct threat of violence at minimum. The victims of white capping were black business owners and black landowners. They would be chased off of their property, often at gunpoint, and that property or land would be seized by the whites committing the terror act. You know what this kind of reminds me of? Like, I'm, I'm here in, like, Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know what I mean? Like, yes. that, I'm thinking of Black Wall Street and what happened there. Success being extinguished. Exactly, right? Yeah. It, it's, it's terrifying and it's, it's a tragedy. Yeah. It's sick. Yeah. So, in 1904, white capping actually occurred in Pike County in John Lewis's home county. The Troy Messenger, a newspaper that's actually still around today. I looked it up, and I quickly used my three free articles, I think. Yeah. Um, so I can't read any more. Uh, but uh, a newspaper that time that still runs today actually recounted this indictment of these five Pike County white men who had burned two black churches in an act of white capping. Interesting. In the book, John Lewis calls white capping a variation of lynching. It's almost like economic lynching as well, right? Yeah, I would say so, huh? Right on. Yeah. You hit it right on the head. Yeah. I, I, I think that is too. Definitely. So let, let's, let's kind of do a palate cleanser real quick. Okay. Okay, in 1940, the year John Lewis was born, here's what was happening, okay? The U.S. was not yet fighting in World War II. Okay. CBS demonstrates the first color television. The first freeway in Los Angeles is opened. And you and know, know the jokes. Yeah. Everyone, <laughs> everyone SNL jokes. has a whole skit <laughs> about all the freeways in Los Angeles called the Californians. <laughs> and it started in 1940. So books written at the time, two were The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, a Southern Gothic classic, and For Whom the Bell, Bell Tolls, Tolls by Hemingway. Yeah. Now, people that were born, you may know some of these names. Richard Pryor, oh. Raquel Welch, ah. Pele. Pele. Alex Trebek. Alex Trebek. All born in 1940 with John Lewis. Okay. Glenn Miller and his orchestra were the best-selling music group from 1939 to 1942. That's like, uh, Glenn Miller, I think, was the start of yeah. Big Band, if you're familiar with that. With oh, all the instruments playing all okay, the music. Big band. Okay, Big Band. Kind, of, I, like I didn't a, know if, kind never... of a precursor to Wall of Sound, if not the Wall of Sound. Okay, I have Creating heard... a lot of instruments together to, to have almost a cacophony of music. A cacophony of music. Okay, yeah, because I haven't heard of Glenn Miller until, yeah. Yeah, well, now you know, he was the big hit when John Lewis was born. So John's mother worshipped the idea of hard work. Willie Mae Carter married Eddie Lewis, and they worked as sharecroppers together, something you referenced yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah. They had ten children together, Aura, Edward, Adolph, William, Ethel, Freddie, Samuel, Henry, Rosa, and John. 
Part of growing up in Pike County, Alabama included picking cotton. Day after day, with the burning sun reminding you that this will be repeated tomorrow. Rows of cotton with what John described as literally backbreaking labor. At 62 years old, his mother was still working the same fields diligently. It wasn't the labor that bothered him the most, though. It was the clampdown on growth, the clampdown on the upward mobility that gave him the most grief. The redundancy of hard labor with limited results can be numbing. It, you know, the numbing effect over time is that. It's called the numbing effect. Yeah, and, and you're talking about like the redundancy of labor right now, and we're talking about growth and being in the cotton fields. You know, that really does remind me of like, um, like what we're seeing today with some of the Latinx community about out there in the fields, you know what I'm saying? I guess there is a cyclical effect within American history and, and, and whatnot, you know, you see that Latinos and whatnot, and now you're in, with blacks in the past, right? Yeah, that's... If I'm not mistaken, yeah, California is, is the number one cotton producer in the nation, and so there's a lot of work, a lot of labor being a done here. A lot of labor, a lot yeah. of agriculture as well. Oh, yeah. We, we were an agrarian society to start, and we're, we're always going to be in some way. Yeah. Farmers out in the field would risk their family's livelihood each cycle, each season. Planting, harvesting, taking the risks against the weather, taking the risks that their, their crop is going to come out as they need. Yeah. It was this exploitation of labor that created the no way out feeling for John. By the end of the day's yield, roughly a fifth of a ton of cotton sold for 35 cents per 100 pounds. Less than $2 total. A fifth of a ton of cotton, Adrian. Cotton, mm -hmm. light, fluffy. Yeah. Right? And a fifth of a ton. That's heavy. A ton. Yeah, yeah, that's heavy. Sold for 35 cents per hundred pounds. This is what John Lewis's parents were actually earning when he was born in 1940. I mean, that is exploitation. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're bringing in that much wealth to the owner of the land, even though you're sharecropping it, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. John would argue with his mother that they were essentially working for nothing. To your yeah, point, yeah. breaking even at best, and she would quit back at him that talking against work at all was aggravating and negatively affecting to one's spirit. You know what's beautiful about that? I have these stories about my mom as well. Yeah. You know, talking about, man, if you speak bad on somebody, you know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> That's always going to come back to you. So Boomerang. keep your own... Boomerang keep, effect. Exactly. Keep your own spirit clean. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Don't, don't put that hate out there into the world. You, well, know? you said the magic word. Yeah. Spiritual strength was an absolute cornerstone in the character of John Lewis. Mm. His mother's strength of spirit is what embodied the civil rights movement to come. To John, for anyone to carry that spirit was to be unbreakable. A spirit that wasn't created, but passed across generations. Yeah. She would repeat a phrase she heard constantly from her grandfather, this being John's mother. Mm -hmm. Her grandfather, Frank Carter, would say this phrase back in slavery times. Frank Carter was born into slavery, and while his parents did own a small farm in Pike County as of 1880, it was sold for reasons that will never be known to the Lewis family or, or to any of us. It could have been intimidation. They could have been forced. Yeah. There's no real knowledge. There's, they don't know why that land had to go. When John's, when John's parents met, they quickly fell in love. One year later... Shorty and Sugarfoot got married in 1932. Yeah, I like that. That's what Shorty, they affectionately called Shorty each other. Shorty and Sugarfoot. <laughs> yeah. Now, I like folks that. called them Willie and Buddy. Yeah. Right? But Shorty and Sugarfoot. I like that. Me too. <laughs> I'm with that. <laughs> Me too. In 1936, they had their first child, Aura. And four years later, John Lewis was born. Mm. Throughout his life, John drove across the Alabama state line, down the six-lane highway, a seemingly infinite amount of times to go back to his roots and pay tribute to family on special occasions. Definitely. He
He would see the changing of times like former farms that had become developments. He'd see familiarity of billboards. And he'd also see walls of local kudzu covering entire sides of abandoned barns. And kudzu is like that type of plant. You know, like ivy walls and the plant that grows vertically and seems to defy logic and, and everything. That's kudzu. Kudzu. Oh. So it's kind of that plant that grows all over walls and creates that kind of a wall of a plant almost. Oh, okay. And so, and so uh, he would see this and it would bring familiarity to him. And, you know, it's the vegetation that's at home there. But Interesting. he felt the haunting too when passing through Tuskegee, right? The ideal of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s beloved community was always guiding him. The word poor was not in the Lewis family lexicon growing up. Life itself was a rich experience. The first house he grew up in had a kind of safety bubble around it, in part because of Alabama's geopolitics of the time. That enabled him to value the richness of daily life in his earliest years. To appreciate his family and friends and the impact of community, even as a child, but especially in reflection. So when you talk about Alabama's geopolitics at the time, in what sense? So there was a lot of forested areas and a lot of small communities that were kind of surrounded by forests, surrounded by these pockets of wooded areas and rolling hills okay. and, and streams and creeks that we uh, mentioned before. Yeah. And what that did was kind of create these little sub-communities around each other That's in which John Lewis's family and friends around had a protected yeah. bubble. And this was really up to about his first four years in life. And yet in the book, he recounts rem- remembering getting in the car at four and, and uh, going driving to, it's around. It's like going off to a little village and, and or going off that, to a commune or whatever. Not preparing not to move but, out yeah. into the next place. And, and so he actually has memories of this uh, from a time. And so he lived from his first four years with a joy of life, with a fullness and richness of life because he didn't have the inequity, the racism, the things that would yeah. be coming up shortly that, he, that would really shape him. Yeah. And so he grew up in this bubble full of love, full of friendship, full of a good community. And it was because of, in part, those geopolitics where mm-hmm. he didn't see outsiders. They didn't see a lot of white folks who, yeah. who potentially would commit, you know, These ri- atrocities or discrimination yeah, or discrimin- atrocities, atrocities, any range yeah. of that. Yeah, all of it. And so that's what the geopolitics kind of was, okay. so to speak, in 1950s, oh, 1940s Alabama. Alabama. Okay, yep. nice. His parents took a profoundly important step forward when they purchased a house with ample land, about 110 acres of wooded, rolling land, kind of what I referenced earlier, but they had 110 acres of it to themselves, and this is a huge deal, a huge step, monumental for them, and this house had the highest ceilings young John had ever seen. Could you imagine that, being a black family, owning 110 Acres back then. This is like 1945. Wow. This is that's 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 it's monumental. It's it's, that's huge. And that's the word John used in the book. Is it was a monumental thing for his family to do. It's huge. And you're gonna see how this shakes out a little bit. Okay. John makes a point to describe the Alabama heat and the Alabama sun again and again in this book, and with good reason. You have a quote from uh, To Kill a Mockingbird that kind of speaks to this, and this was set in, I believe, Montgomery, Alabama. Somehow it was hotter than a black dog suffered on a summer's day. Bony mules hitched to hoover carts flicked flies in the sweltering shade of the live oaks on the square. Men stifled collars wilted by nine in the morning. Ladies bathed before noon after their three o'clock naps. And by nightfall, they were like soft, tea cakes with frostings of sweat and sweet 
talcum. And so with To Kill a Mockingbird, she's describing just the extreme brutal heat. Tea cakes with frostings of sweat and sweet talcum. Men's stiff collars wilted by nine because of the heat, because they're pouring sweat and they're, they're drenching their collars in sweat. And so the Alabama sun, the Alabama heat is regarded as having the worst heat in the nation. And I had always thought like California or oh, no, desert no. or like no, no, no. Arizona, New Mexico. And, and we had talked about this earlier yeah. with the humidity playing yeah. a factor in the South. Uh, yeah, but yeah. not just that. The sun just beats, beats down, down on Alabama, the worst out of every state. Yeah. Soundtrack for the Lewis family in the 1940s included gospel radio megastars, Pilgrim Travelers, The Soul Stirrers, and The Five Blind Boys of Mississippi. This music genre became rhythm and blues and morphed into soul. They probably they probably were going in on it, you know. <laughs> I mean, their music morphed into soul over time. They had some, well, that's they true. Had some that, rhythm that, with it. I mean, that's true, right? Yeah. It morphed into soul and then it morphed into, you know, the whole jazz era. Yeah. And we got rap out of it, right? Before discovering books at school, young John would primarily read the Sears Roebuck catalogs to the point of dreaming about the merchandise pencil sketches on each page. He would actually fall asleep reading this catalog and he would dream about the pencil sketches. That's interesting. So this is the same Sears, like the Sears department stores, right? Exactly. Ah, exactly. Okay, okay. That's them. They were a big deal back in the day. You'd get the catalog, you'd order all your stuff. So actually a lot of the things from their home, their supplies, their needs came from the Sears Roebuck catalog. Actually. Okay. Okay. Roebuck. I think I'm saying that correctly. They had two churches that were each attended once a month, Macedonia Baptist and Dunn's Chapel AME. If the weather wasn't cooperative, traveling a few miles to church became a full-on expedition for this deeply rural community. The roads weren't paved. Young John loved church. The excursions were a joy. The Sunday best clothing was a delight from everybody. And he even formed a lifelong joke at church one Sunday when he called his mother Mrs. Lewis and Jest. And two of his aunts, okay, so two of his aunts actually, they never missed church. Yeah. They turned to John's mom and remarked how the joke was kind of weird, a little bit odd for John to make. And this really marked one of the first times that John felt himself as different from others, but in a positive and, and a little bit of an odd way. I'm trying to figure out in what sense, you know? His unique humor. His, ah, unique, his yeah. unique perspective. Okay, his, you his, know? Yeah, that makes sense. Using right? the formality yeah. of Mrs. Lewis with his mom, it wasn't a joke yeah. apparently anyone else was making. <laughs> okay, and it's yeah. Of, I mean, yeah, okay, I see that. I, I mean, see that. You yeah. know me, I say some quirky things. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? yeah. <laughs> like, no, that's that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'd cool. put that under the quirky category a little bit. Yeah. You know, like he's uh, he's got an odd humor. Why would you be calling your mom Mrs. Lewis? A kind of a. Yeah, it's jokingly. Yeah, it's jokingly, right? There's, okay, something, there's yeah. something there. The music and spirit from every person in church, regardless of social class or strife, completely uplifted John. And the, improv the improvisational nature of his pastors was also inspiring. He really liked how they would just do the prayer and then kind of spin off and do their thing and yeah. how the congregation would, would give them amens and hallelujahs and hum during the, the, past, the sermons. And he really, really played off of that, that spirit and that energy. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, that reminds me of... Um... My grandmother's church, you know, in South Central LA, you know, mm -hmm. when we get in there, man, it just, it, it, energy. <laughs> when the spirit catches you, there's that, there's that energy that gets to you and you're just, you're out, you're out. You know? you're, I've you heard know? that phrase, when the spirit captures you before. I, I actually, you know what I mean? Yeah. It hits. It hits. I, I know what you're referencing from others. I've, I've heard that a few times. Oh, man. It makes me think of the video where the one pastor throws his hand and all the rows of people fall back in their chairs. And it's like a wave of people falling back. It happens. It happens. Well, like you said, I guess the spirit... Spirit hits. The spirit hits. <laughs>
You know, so... But it was the chickens that ultimately showcased who a young John Lewis would become as a civil rights leader. Oh yeah, the chickens. <laughs> I like to hear that. What is this? What yeah. The chickens? What is this? So, you know, he, he grew up on the farm. Okay. 110 acres. They had tons oh, of animals yeah, and all. That's right, that's right, that's right. Rural farm. Alabama, you're making your yeah. own. And so, the absolute purity, the unmitigated innocence of the chickens, compared to the other animals on the farm, is what drew John to them. In the chickens, he saw defenseless creatures that demonstrated grace over what people perceive as weakness. The rest of his family saw stupid birds. That is so enlightening when you really think about it. I've never even thought of that my own, my own self. A chicken as grace. Wow. Yeah. Powerful, John. <laughs> the food chain doesn't tell us that It really doesn't. I, yeah, I mean, right. the food chain really doesn't tell us that. Wow. Yeah. And so the rest of his family, you know, they saw them as the stupid birds, as yeah. I mentioned. But at five years old, John recognized their outcast status and bonded with them as he oversaw their care. At five years old, he oversaw the care of 60 chickens. Nice. Okay. Looking back, he recognizes how he learned from this. Patience, diligence, discipline. And of course, his family thought he was a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He preached the chickens nightly. Two of the chickens' names, Big Bell and Lil Pullet. I love it. Man. <laughs> Just imagine, Big no, Bell and Lil come on, Pullet. imagine five-year-old John Lewis. He's in the he's in the coop to Big Bell, with Lil sixty birds, talking like, to Big Bell, Lil Pullet. <laughs> they're also helping him out in his sermons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, then he believed when he would go into the coop and there was a moment of silence. Yeah, and then cluck, 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 all sixty, and he believed that they were saying hi and saying what's up to him. Oh, that's amazing. You know? Yeah, he really connected with them. Yeah, he really did. Yeah. And so he preached to the chickens nightly. <clears throat> and so John Lewis, who jokingly called his mom Mrs. Lewis, became known as Preacher. Oh, he's a preacher, yeah. On his That's way. That's where it comes from. On his okay. way. All At right. six, John shifted to working in the fields because he was big enough to. And so the joy that Preacher got from caring for the chickens was replaced with the daily grind of survival. And black farm owners in 1950s Alabama knew nothing better than cotton. In his words, the tedious, grinding, monotonous rhythm of cotton. The seasons turned, and by 12, John was working the plow solo. After the planting season came the Alabama sun. Chopping cotton was an infinite job, and dropping soda, or fertilizing, left you exhausted with swollen, cut-up hands. Picking cotton required constant bending down, up to 10 hours a day, backbreaking. And with the tenant arrangement that was in place, a white family named the Copelands was on the other end of this sharecropping deal. So what they did is they took their half of the Lewis family's cotton promptly each time each harvest. Could you imagine? You get 110 acres, and then all of a sudden... It's just snaked from under you. All of a sudden, they deducted not just the half immediately, but also whatever John's dad owed them for the supplies that they, the Copelands, provided so that John Lewis's family could plant that cotton in the first place. Sharecropping. The realities of sharecropping, man. Mm -hmm. Exactly. What a system. <laughs> what, a, what a submission without slavery, I'm telling you. Mm. <laughs> the remainder of, the, of that cotton, so half minus whatever for expenses, uh -huh. went entirely to the Lewis family. All whatever percentage that was. At six years old, young John Lewis saw the inequity in this. And one thing opened a door out of this cycle for him. School. 
John's first school was a small wooden building with a painted green roof and a flimsy interior wall that created the appearance of two rooms. First three grades in one room, the rest in the other. His mother attended this school and his grandparents' generation before her. It was actually built by Julius Rosenwald around 1900 as part of a larger philanthropic effort to provide educational opportunities to black children. You know, Adrian, Rosenwald was a Sears Roebuck owner, the same catalog that John Lewis would dream about as a kid. Oh, yeah. so the Sears owner wanted to donate money to, or donate a school to black children. Not just to that. It was actually a, a program that he built across the country. Oh, and okay. So no, I, okay. I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. I didn't, okay. So, 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 so Sears was like, all right, boom. Let's scale it. We're going to have it all across the, the South, right? Julius Rosenwald across the, the country. The South wanted, of the country. He wanted to provide teaching and educational uh, schools. And so these were the, these were these little shacks, yeah. right? But the governments weren't funding them. The local cities weren't funding them. And I believe it was around the country. And you said, okay, so and you said this was like the 1900s. So this is kind of like the new idea of, of like the 20th century in which like mass, the, mass populations becoming like educated, right? Whereas back in the old days, it was like people, like only the high, the rich to can actually point, have, to have point, the education. Education right? is a right. Exactly. I totally agree. I agree, yeah. And, and at the yeah. time here, it was not being treated that way. That's exactly. what I'm Absolutely. trying to yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this guy started building them in around 1890s, 1900s. Okay. John yeah. Lewis attended the school in uh, the 1940s. Mm -hmm. Early nineteen, uh, really the nineteen forties, mm -hmm. and so his mom attended the school. Okay, his grandparents' generation, not his grandparents, but his grandparents' generation also attended the school. Oh, okay. So this yeah. school has so, been so there. So this school's been there. It's it's, and, it's a fixture in the community at this point. Uh, a fixture. It's not a, little, a fixture, it's but a little it's there. Room. It's like yeah. it's a little worn down right. place. It's, of course, it's, yeah. It's, of course, it's, it's, it's like it's, a shed, but it's, it's, it's described as a whitewashed shed. And again, it has this single like yeah. like uh, nonsense wall divider. Four, and there's three grades in one side of the wall and the rest yeah. of the grades on the other. And the teacher was the only one that received any kind of funding within the school for her salary. The classroom had an Alabama flag, which a young John found majestic, but it had no American flag. Families provided the school supplies. There was no funding, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. to pay except for their teacher, mm. who taught all grades. The teacher taught all the grades there. Interesting. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, right. At that time, at that time, it yeah, worked that a little more sense. like that. Yeah. The smaller yeah. classrooms, yeah. you know. John was a sloppy writer, and it's said actually that some really intelligent people write poorly because their hands don't keep up with their brain. I don't know if you'd heard of that. Yeah. I haven't heard of that. But yeah. In my mind, I think of uh, doctors writing on prescription pads. Oh uh, yeah, you can never that's read right. Them. That's right. <laughs> you can never see a doctor yeah. writing on a. That's right. If if you can read your doctor's writing, time to switch. So, yeah. <laughs> Learning to write was a thrilling experience. Young John was shy and self-conscious until he began a presentation. At that point, when he began, he felt connected to his audience and felt the comfort that he actually felt when preaching to his chickens. You know what's so interesting about that? Like I'm saying, like he's saying, he, he's like taking writing as like something that's uh, powering, right? Whereas like not too long before him and really not too long even today, like, as a slave, you were like killed for writing, <laughs> for learning how to write, or not necessarily killed because, of course, they wanted their commodity, right? But like you were, you were tortured. True to the writing, John completely treated it like, yeah, but he like, owned it, like he owns his own, like you know what I'm saying? Like, he was able to create, and for somebody who was working with chickens, preaching in the sermons, yeah. he had the family Bible that he grew up yeah. with, and things like that, yeah. right? 
But now he was able to write his own and start to create and put his thoughts and feelings to pen, you know, to paper. And you know, creating can be oh, a yeah. very powerful experience. It's definitely powerful. In his case, in particular. But you know, more than writing, reading was his favorite part of school. Third grade is when John Lewis learned the names and stories of Joe Lewis, Booker T. Washington, Mary McLeod Bethune, and George Washington Carver. His first field trip out of Pike County was to the Tuskegee Institute to witness a laboratory like George Washington Carver had experimented in. The influence beyond Pike County was taking hold, and home always stayed close to John over time, too. Kind of like two parallel tracks that coexisted within him cleanly. Troy, Alabama was a town that always knew how to fight, as John Lewis writes. When the town was founded in the 1830s, they immediately built a jail. After Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in April of 1865, a local business owner made a white marble monument that was dedicated to John Wilkes Booth. I mean, John Wilkes Booth, really. You know, it's so interesting. He did. So even back then, like, we got all these erected statues. I guess that's when those statues were pretty much being erected. They were. And we're all trying to take them down now. You know what I'm saying? So, so I it's didn't like, write about this. So, it's like so cyclical, you know? You like make crazy. a great point. I didn't write about this, but actually they even had like a monument to fallen Confederate soldiers. Come on. It said something like, lest they never be forgotten. And their names were on a plaque and things like that. I mean, I don't know. I, can I just say, like, in my opinion, like, if, if you're on that side of the fence, then it's like you're a traitor to the country well, at this point. This is also 1940s, 1950s true. Alabama. True, true, true. You know, true. now a little different today. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> the monument to John Wilkes Booth stayed up in that business owner's front yard until he died, actually. As of 1998, Confederate flags were still big in Troy. 1998 yeah. being when this book was written, the memoir of John Lewis. Yeah, so that wasn't too long ago. Not long ago. We know they are still present. We saw Confederate flags in Torrance locally, actually. I yeah. saw them last year. They're all over. Torrance being here local to yeah. Southern California. So, yeah, right. It's like right here. At Bird's Drugs, the local pharmacy, young John could buy a hand-mixed Coca-Cola like anyone else. But black people were strictly forbidden from sitting at the tables or up at the counters. A bench outside of the drugstore was his makeshift hangout spot. Other memories linger with John as he matured in Troy. The bathroom marked white was remarkably clean, while the bathroom marked for black people only was decrepit and disgusting. The difference in quality and sanitation between the two water fountains, chrome versus rust. The public library, a vehicle to worlds beyond Troy, which did not allow black people in. That particularly hurt John. So it's like, it's not only the physical, but the whole mental, the mental as well as the physical aspects of life was like, you know, so segregated, you know? A massive emotional toll it took yeah. on, on anyone impacted. I mean... There was Love Street, which had a couple of black-owned businesses, like a barber shop and beauty parlor. Love Street was named after the eccentric local character from the 1830s, Anne Dowdell Love. And, and this story, I love it. Yeah. This, this is what's a ridiculous up with, what's story. Up, what's up with the Anne Dowdell Love? <laughs> she would roam the streets with a whip and butcher knife as she encouraged the drunks and riffraff around the courthouse to go to church. Oh. <laughs> I give you yeah. 1830s Alabama. Oh, I love it. This, this, it's a great this story. is a great story. Just, yeah. You know, <laughs> young John was forbidden to go by his mother down to, the, uh, down to Love Street. Now, Mrs. Lewis, as John called her, 
there was a few nightclubs there, and she actually considered the entire section a dive and kind of a, a den of sin, in a way, mm. because of those nightclubs. So I'm just trying to think. It's just like, you know, kind of like maybe mom was, I don't know, I'm just, I don't know if I'm getting into mom's head or whatnot. It kind of seems like she's like trying to protect him from the world or whatnot, and he's like, no, you know, let me see what's up. You know, so he had his own little, he, he, was he had his own little. Really for John, he was really curious about the black-owned business part. Okay. He saw that right, there that's... was, he noticed three offices that were always available for lease. He noticed that there was a barber shop, a beauty salon. Mm. You know, he noticed the nightclubs, but really because it seemed like he noticed that because his mom made it a point to say that's mm. not a good place to be. Mm. John also mentioned that his older sister, I believe it was Aura, he said he can't confirm she went. He can't confirm she didn't go to Love Street. <laughs> so I think at least one member of the Lewis family got to hang yeah, out at the nightclubs. Got night to hang clubs, out at the nightclubs, huh? <laughs> Interesting. As the 1950s progressed, John became more aware of the rest of the U.S., as relatives and siblings made their way back to Pike County from places like Detroit and Newark. The North. John began to dream more about the equity and equality northern states seemed to provide. Why didn't black children in the same schools? At about nine years old, the concept of moving north became something of an obsession. In 1951, John's Uncle Otis took him up north for the first time. John is convinced that at this point, his uncle saw something in him that he had not yet seen in himself. And that's why his Uncle Otis took him on an inspiring trip. Once they drove out of Alabama, Tennessee, and Kentucky, and into Ohio, his Uncle Otis was actually able to drive more relaxed. You know what I'm talking about yeah, there? Yeah, I do. It's, it's kind of like, um, in a sense, it's like his own migration up north. In a way, it you was know, John Lewis's... It, it was his migration. You and know, you're going like, to find he misses home pretty quickly. Okay, yeah, that's, yeah. And we know that. He loves the South. He loves the he South. Loves his home. That's, that's him. He always visited that's it, always traveling that six-lane highway over and over. That's always been him. It has. Wow. So while he was out, you know, John got to experience a lot of new things. He rode an escalator for the first time. He saw Niagara Falls. They went to an outdoor market. He shopped like anyone else in a big city. And by the time the trip ended, he desperately missed home, and he was never the same again after this trip. And I mentioned him missing home, yeah. but... Thinking about the escalator, right? An escalator, cool. No, this was automation. Yeah. This was innovation. It was their form of tech. tech. It was tech their form of tech, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so he's able to see that the world is changing and moving, and he's coming from unpaved roads yeah. and rural farming, plucking eight, ten hours a day that cotton, working the fields, plowing. Which... And then he goes into these cities, and he sees these high-rises, and then he sees this elevator, escalator. And not just and that. Just he's allowed on all of it. He's allowed. That's the we're big at home. That's he the can't sit at that counter. Yeah, we're, he we're, can't we're, shop like everybody else. That's right. That's right. Rust, right? His money might be good. Yeah. But they don't. Yeah. After that, he had to go outside. He had to go outside. That's right. He couldn't sit at the tables. Yeah. Couldn't sit at the tables. John started to notice that all... Black men and women greeted white people, men, women, or children, with a sir, a ma'am, Mr. or Mrs., but the respect was never reciprocated back. The roads in his black community weren't paved. This created real logistical issues with rainy weather, like how the kids had to help to push a bus out of the deep mud in torrential rains plenty of times. Could you imagine being a child just 
getting out and then just pushing the bus. You don't think about it, I think. I think there's a certain part of you where you just do you it. You just do it. It's yeah, normal. I guess, yeah. As a kid, it's no, normal that's, that, yeah, yeah. because you don't know anything else. I guess else. everything that happens, like, right, it's yeah. like, it's normal. This is just been life. This is always going to be life. Now, so. for John to see the paved roads, maybe, and talk about yeah, it, or if they knew about paved roads and yeah, said, yeah. well, it'd be great if we had those, then that's a little different, definitely. That's definitely different. Maybe they were young enough to where it was like, Okay, this is what it is. This is what it is. Let's, potentially, let's do it. yeah. Because again, he grew up for his first four years, full of joy. With and he said the richness of life was enjoyed. That kind of thing. Yeah, he's that's in rural right. Alabama. Yeah. They're they're struggling to get land to keep it over time. Right, his family from the eighteen hundreds had to give up their property mysteriously. Yeah. On the way to school, the ever-present prison work gangs that did road maintenance consisted of only black prisoners. The noticeable inequities began to stack up. Mm and classrooms enabled a young John to escape them. Work in the field came before school. Even though John's parents did want better for him, work in the field meant continued survival. But he began to hide from his parents in the morning, right? And so he would hide from his parents. He'd, yeah. like, hide under the basement, sta- under these stairs. Yeah. And they'd be looking for him to go work the field. And then right when the bus arrived, he'd go run to the bus so his parents couldn't catch him. <laughs> And, and he would go just to school. go to school, yeah. Because he, he knew... Talk about wanting that hunger to actually do something. Wanting to be like, uh, I know this isn't for me. Yeah. That's not for me. Let me... What do they got over there? Hold on. <laughs> exactly. No, 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 no. Yeah. Let me have... What, what is that? He you may know have been shy and self-conscious. He, he was curious, too. But he was curious, right? Oh, yeah. And so, one thing that's great, his father would reprimand him when he came home, of course, but he never whipped him. John would do it again. And again and again. Again and again. Oh yeah, he was meant for something else. In his second year of high school, John was leaning towards either preaching or studying law. And he was committed to doing either one outside of Pike County. He began reading black journals and writings from around the country in his school library that he didn't have access to before. Yeah. He couldn't go in to the local public library. He wasn't allowed. But at his school, he had access now. Yeah, I would imagine. He read a Supreme Court decision that completely rocked his world. Brown versus the Board of Education. Separate but equal was unconstitutional. Thus, segregation was unconstitutional. Dreams of integration were dashed quickly by Alabama politicians calling the day Brown versus the Board of Education was decided as Black Monday. White citizen councils, the Ku Klux Klan, with suits instead of hoods, began to emerge in nearby states to fight this Supreme Court ruling. KKK marches and midnight cross burnings were being reported all across Alabama. Stories outside of Pike County told of horrific beatings and abuses that couldn't necessarily be easily verified. So at this point, we're pretty much getting back to like white capping and lynching. We are. Right? Back to, yeah, back to the, yeah. Yeah, the discrimination, the abuses, yeah. the terror. Yeah, man. And one Sunday morning in 1955, the voice of a young minister from Atlanta broke through the radio that John was listening to. A strong, deep, rhythmic cadence that was entrancing and in a style of Baptist whooping. The cadence was mesmerizing. And at the end of the sermon, John Lewis finally heard the name, Martin Luther King Jr. This sermon was Paul's letter to the American Christians. The streets of Montgomery, Alabama, required focus and action on the present racial injustice, not just a focus on getting to heaven. 
This minister was speaking a social gospel, a method to act now to improve the lives of so many instead of applying a passive acceptance like every minister before would focus on to him. Wow. Uh, man, that must have hit him hard. Because I can tell you this, Martin Luther King, he's my forefather. He's one of my forefathers. Hands down. <laughs> John began to learn all he could about this new preacher. Resident pastor at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, graduate of Morehouse College, and now John wanted to follow in Reverend King's footsteps by attending Morehouse College. Oh. Prominent segregationists like Senators Strom Thurmond and James Eastland vowed to fight the Supreme Court on their forced integration policies. These senators were willing to fight to the death to prevent integration. I mean, Extremist language from conservative politicians, Adrian, it's not new. It's really not new. I mean, this is kind of reminiscent of what, kind of like what we're seeing now with the, with the Trump supporter, huh? With some of them saying that they would fight to the death. Yeah. This is rhetoric that's existed. This is rhetoric for a long that time. that speaks to that, right? And yeah. this is rhetoric that has been in, in our country, case, for, not just from in our country, it's in the conservative it's in, party. Yeah, it's in the yeah. I guess you're right. Yeah, conservative party. Yeah. And another event occurred in 1955 that that really rocked the country in a lot of ways, and still still carries just. In 1955, Emmett Till was 14 years old and visiting Money, Mississippi, in August of 1955, when he was brutally murdered. Complimenting a white woman was all it took, and this tragedy shaped John Lewis because he understood that Emmett Till could have been him. It shook him to his core. The emotion that sunk in his gut was diametrically opposed to the pure joy elicited from the Brown versus the Board of Education decision. The innocence of Emmett Till didn't matter to the jury, the guilty parties were found not guilty. By the end of 1955, the movement could be seen on the horizon. Rosa Parks made headlines by refusing to give up her seat at the front of a bus to a white man, and this occurred 50 miles away from Troy. And that led to the Montgomery bus boycott. Reverend King then helps to form the Montgomery Improvement Association, which mobilizes the 50,000 black bus riders to boycott the racism of the segregated transit system to resist. Over the year of boycotting, John Lewis followed it all in the news from home. He became completely fixated with the style of protest. The power of nonviolence overwhelmed him. Like his beloved chickens from his childhood, the passive resistance was a clear strength. Think about that, like all of that going on, you know, I mean, could you really just like, you, you can't just sit and be idle, right? Like that, yeah. that's, that's amazing, man. Like you see all of these things going on, all these events, how can one just sit down and just be indifferent towards it all? You can't really, right? He was really starting to find himself, it feels find, like. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's what I was getting at. Like he was really trying to find himself. This is the or maturing, he's seen, he's seen. This is the maturing of John Lewis too in a lot of ways, yeah, it feels like, yeah. where he's really... Mature. In a lot, you hear the idea of people growing up early. Yeah, and I think yeah. Emmett Till made a lot of people grow up. A lot of I black mean, the men, guy, black the teenagers guy was grew like, up early. Weren't they around the same neck of the age woods or whatnot, right? Yeah, I mean, if he's I born mean, in nineteen, this forty, is what, yeah, nineteen forty, and Emmett Till was, 14, and Emmett Till was 15, yeah, dude, nineteen forty and fifty five, yeah, and that's why you said it could have been him. It could have been him, huh? Jeez. And at this point, maybe understandably, John wanted to be a preacher more than a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. John was focused on school, church, and the growing protest movement. He didn't date, though he, he did flirt. He wrote sweet notes to some girls in school. 
you know, he thinks it might have had a lot to do with not having a driver's license. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he tried to get it, but during the test, he got flustered by the driving official, and, and the test ended with the driving official actually publicly degrading him outside of the courthouse, saying, boy, don't come back here till you learn how to drive. And it really shook John. Yeah. 26 years later, though, he did get his driver's license. Yeah, there you go. So he kept going. Perseverance. But, hey, better late than never. Yeah. In 1956, February, a few days before John turned 16, he preached his first sermon. This was 12 days after white people rioted over the University of Alabama admitting their first black student, Authorine Lucy. She was expelled before attending a single class for her safety, quote-unquote. Violence soon hit close to home. Two days after John's sermon, a relative named Dr. Brewer was shot seven times by a department store owner that resided below Dr. Brewer's office. The verdict was justifiable homicide. Dr. Brewer was publicly known for fighting to allow black people to vote in Georgia, and I believe that was around 1948 that he was fighting for that. And and now we're about seven years later. The black community believed that this murder was an act of Klan violence. Mm. Emmett Till could have been John Lewis. Dr. Brewer was family to John Lewis. Wow. Man. So this is just him. This is this is him. He yeah. This is this is all this it's is so really, close. This is really, yeah. It's all around him and it's so close. Around, yeah. Yeah. George Wallace, we mentioned him earlier, he ran a racially charged campaign at this point against Alabama's Attorney General John Patterson. Ultimately, this inspired John Lewis to send $1.50, about $15 today, to join the NAACP. He proudly carried his blue and white card until it crumbled into pieces over time. In 1950, John Lewis was accepted to American Baptist College. He was ready to leave Pike County. All right, Adrian, that is the first part of our series on John Lewis. What, what did you think? Powerful. You know, I mean, he's a titan. Yeah. He's a giant when it comes to when it comes to civil rights. You know, when I'm, I'm listening to him and his understanding of how he saw situations in the world, you know. Yeah. And then him hearing about Martin Luther King and how that woke him up. You know, this man inspired him. And it's like, I consider King... As my forefather, mm-hmm. one of my forefathers, right. you know what I'm saying? And it's like, I actually do I'm know con- you in our conversations. I actually do know what you're talking about. You know, and it's like, I'm connecting with him on that level. Like, man, King inspired this man. And King's also like inspired me. He's like my forefather. It's like, and you can see, you know, a catalyst like Martin Luther King, a name that becomes a pop kind of yeah. icon, a uh, uh, a, a buzzword almost in when some ways, but you're actually seeing with John Lewis what exactly. Martin Luther King did to a exactly. 15 year old man. That's what kind I'm, of inspiration that's he what I'm, yeah, That's what that's, yeah. And 50,000 yeah. people boycotting in Montgomery after Rosa Parks with Martin Luther King organizing that. Exactly. And John Lewis seeing that, I got to join the NAACP. Yeah. And then John Lewis Here's 15 bucks. immediately being like, you know what, I'm going to take the initiative. I'm, I'm not a man yet, but I'm becoming a man and I'm growing into my own. Yeah. And it's time. Yeah, he knew he had to leave Pike County to do that. He knew he had to leave. That's powerful, man. Right? And uh, what is the quote? Uh, You can't uh, have courage to swim to new horizons until you lose the fear to uh, not see the shore anymore, right? Something like that, right? A little off, yeah. 
But really, with John Lewis, what you're seeing, right? The story of the chickens. The story of his mom and calling his mom Mrs. Lewis, right? Yeah. There is a lot going on here where you can see he's unique. He's a rare element in American history. But also his story, it plays, right? The spirit that he carried is something that carried from slave descendancy. Oh, definitely. I mean, I mean, you can see it through his story and, and, and when he's actually telling it. You know that it is of an oral tradition. Exactly. Our oral tradition. Yep. Not just black. Mainly black, but it's really an American tradition as well. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like... So we're going to get into so much more, too. I mean, we have the Freedom Ride coming up. We have Selma, right? We have so much upcoming. And so what we want to end with, we're going to actually read his list of do-nots and do's. These are basically rules of survival that he wrote. And this is going to be upcoming in our next episode. But we want to leave you with basically his protest rules. Do not strike back nor curse if abused. Do not laugh out. Do not hold conversations with Floorwalker. Do not leave your seat until your leader has given you permission to do so. Do not block entrances to stores outside nor the aisles inside. And these are for sit-ins, I believe. Yeah, so these are for sit-ins, right? Do show yourself friendly and courteous at all times. Kill them with a smile. Yeah. Do sit straight, always face the counter. In the photo of the Greensboro Four, posture composure, confidence in that photo of those four students that I remember, you know? Grace. Grace under fire. Bingo. Do report all serious incidents to your leader. This is something that we know, right? See something, say something. Say something, exactly. This this is something we all do. And it made sense for you. Do refer information seekers to your leader in a polite manner. Do remember the teachings of Jesus Christ, Mahatma Gandhi, and Martin Luther King. Love and nonviolence is the way. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us at patreon.com slash votinginfohq.